Hey Whiskey Ringers, it is the end of spring and almost into summer, and I have some big updates for you. First off, in case you haven't heard, we are going to be doing our first ever Whiskey Ring Podcast Barrel Pick. It is going to be not one, but two barrels of Jack Daniels Barrel Proof Rye straight from Lynchburg. And if that wasn't incentive enough, one of your fellow patrons, a patron at the $25 level, is going to be joining me for the pick. This is going to be the first pick of many. If you want your chance to be part of a pick team, this is the perfect time to up that Patreon pledge to $25. There are only four spots available at that tier. Next up is an upcoming event that I am super excited about. This is going to be the first ever virtual tasting with Riachi Distillery in Lebanon. I got to try these guys when they were in the U.S. for just a couple of days, and this is some phenomenal whiskey. They are the only distillery actively making whiskey in Lebanon right now, and this is a tasting you're just not going to want to miss. It's going to be on June 24th. Make sure to order by June 17th to make sure you get your sample kit in time. If you are a patron or a supporter or a member of the Whiskey Ringers group on Facebook, make sure to use that discount code at checkout to get your 15% off. Hope to see you there, and thank you so much for supporting. Now, here's another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, going back over to Scotland, I'm thrilled to welcome Ronan Curry, who is Blender and Sales Director at the Glenelgy Distillery. Welcome, Ronan. Hi, how you doing? Good, good. Uh, and I hope I got that title right. That was the uh, latest one I found, but I wasn't sure. Yeah, no, no, that's that's perfect. Uh, it's okay. um, quite a big title, quite long. <laughs> no problem. Um, so, uh, again, thank you for coming on. Uh, we just for a bit of context, we met uh, one of my favorite places to go, Travel Bar in the city. So, shout out to Mike at Travel Bar uh, for putting us together. I uh, still can't recommend that place enough for anyone who just wants to great experience with whiskey in new york uh from all around the world so jumping right in here you know we we don't do a ton of deep dives on scottish distilleries for whatever reason but i'd like to explore a few of them and glen Alky was definitely on my list so why don't we start off with you know the history of glen Alky, the both before let's say up until uh billy walker buying it okay up until billy walker um so yeah glen Alky was Distillery. It was built in the 1960s, and it was really set out to be a distillery that produced eventually 4.2 million liters a year, solely to sell spirit to the blended market. Um, in reality, you're really talking the single malt market really taking shape and being really, really popular in the early 2000s. The Glenallic had been built in the 60s. It was a distillery that was completely built produce whiskey for the blended market. So built in 1967, finished in 1968. And then for the majority of its life was this unknown working in the background factory that produced 4.2 million liters a year, as I said, supplying independent bottlers and uh, yeah, blending houses. Eventually fell into the hands of Chevis, who used it a lot in Chevis Regal, and any Royal Salute blends that they've got. I think they released one uh, single malt 
I think it was only released in the UK. It was a non-age statement. That was when they dipped their toe in the water with Clonalake and Single Malt, but then didn't do anything else from them. Um, all in all, Glenallocke as a single malt has got a fairly unactive life, but having previously worked myself with Canheads, the independent bossler, and knowing a little bit about what goes into some blends around, around, around and about, Glenallocke was a huge component for a lot of your big blends and Valentines. White Horse, White Heather, all those, um, it was a big component. And probably, although we don't sell to blenders anymore, or independent bottlers, stock that's out and about probably still is a component for a lot of a lot of blends around. And then, really, the story of how it ended up with Billy Walker. You so say you go back to early two thousands when Billy Walker acquired Ben Rio, then acquired Glendronach, and then eventually Glen Glasser before selling them off to Brown Foreman. In 2015, and Billy being the ever the sort of whiskey legend that he is, and sort of never wanting to stop, he purchased Glenallocke in 2017 from Shivers, who he'll say himself he's had a great rela relationship with over the years as a blender back in his day of working for for Hiram Walker and, and then Burn Stewart in the early 90s, and then eventually acquiring Glenallocke in 2017 from them. So. The most exciting part of Glenallocke's history is from 2017 onwards, I would say. Fair enough. And we will we'll definitely get to that in a moment. I I should jump in and say, um, as we're recording, because we're recording a little bit uh, ahead of schedule, uh, I have just gotten back from London about a week ago, and I had put on my calendar, I really wanted to go to the Cadenhead shop in London. Yeah. And um, I ended up not doing so only because I went to Whiskey Exchange first, Mm -hmm. and made a particularly pricey purchase and decided it wasn't worth my um, risking my wallet more <laughs> to yeah. tempt myself there. But uh, it is on my list to go next time. And um, the other, uh, so the, the other part that I want to, to just go back on a little bit is that it being built in 67, 68, before the very current, like very contemporary new distilleries of today, let's say, you know, Lochley, um, Damuna, things like that. Uh, Harris, for you know, it was Glen Allocke was really one of the last, or at least most recent, big distilleries to be built in Scotland. Kind of right before the, or as whiskey kind of crashed again yeah. worldwide, and as blends took over, or sorry, as blends remained strong, but as single malt was just starting. Barely, you you said they really took place in the two thousands, but as it was just starting to take place. So, what does that mean for its history as well? Yeah, I mean, it it probably plays quite a lot of importance on Glenallochin producing uh, spirit for blends because obviously there was a lot of distilleries closing, blends extending their sort of dominance within the market, and you would say sort of the agile Chevis of custodians of the whiskey industry and keeping it alive we wouldn't we wouldn't be here there wouldn't be this market today if it wasn't for them um but yeah you talk that one of the last big distilleries to be built and even if you look at even now your slightly older new distilleries like so glengyle or Arden, Arden Merkin have been around for a while uh, these are still fairly small distilleries that have been built not producing anywhere near 
a million liters, like below that. So, yeah, four point two million liters in the late sixties is a big, big distillery. Um, it is now dwarfed by even larger distilleries that older distilleries that have um, expanded. But yeah, at the time it was it was a big distillery. And if you ever visit Glenallachie, any listeners ever visit Glenallachie. You can see it's not built as one of those sort of old school traditional distilleries that very picturesque and everything. It is built a little bit like a factory, but it is yeah, it's yeah, it's a big distillery. Um, we don't run it anywhere near its capacity. We don't put that stress on the equipment or the staff to produce four point two million liters. I think we're down about eight hundred thousand liters just now per year. So we're running a big old factory, like a small. <laughs> Boutique distillery, which presents its challenges, but also presents its opportunities as well. And one more, just kind of general question about the, the difference between, let's say, Scotland and, and the U.S. and this, and I've asked a couple, a couple of other guests this as well. But um, Scotland has, I think, at last counts, close to about 150 distilleries. Like there's a mm. good number of them, but a lot of them, even to this day, still exist only for. Uh, blending or primarily for blending purposes, mm-hmm. producing distillate for blending. I mean, and as such, you know, they, the idea of visitor centers and touring distilleries, you know, most of them, the majority at least, are not open to the public to do that kind of thing. Whereas in the US, the there's been a huge push for every distillery has to have a visitor center, a restaurant, mm-hmm. a bar, you know. Um, all these things, everything has to be glass enclosed so you can see every step of the process kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess both both before and after Billy buying Glenallachy, do you, you know, you said that Glenallachy was really a factory distillery, was working for blends for the most part, um, but you did mention if someone were to come and, and look at it. So is it's the, let's start with the first part of the question, which I, I always added these two-part questions and it's too much. So the first part is, what do you think accounts for that difference between Scotland and America in terms of a focus on the visitor center experience versus a working distillery that is meant just for producing whiskey and not as an experience? Yeah, so I think from any, well, Aaron was built in the 90s, Aaron Distillery in Lochranza, and then Glengyle was early 2000s, I think it was complete. And they were probably your distilleries that they were the first ones solely built to welcome people. The distilleries that you walk into the one room and you can see the whole process and you can actually move through the process sort of as it's happening. Any distillery really built before then, in my eyes, has sort of been built not with visitors in mind because if you tour around Glenallachie, you have to double back in yourself, you have to go up and down and not a natural flow of how a tour should work. Um, and if you ever visit any older Scottish distillery, you'll see it doesn't naturally flow. It does flow, it's sort of been manufactured in that way to welcome visitors. Um, we now have a visitor centre, we're about to open a bar on site. I think as an industry, we've moved fairly significantly into the, the direction of allowing people to come onto the site and. welcoming them them visitors to the distillery, showing them around and being more open. Um, I think it's just something where, as a whole industry, we have shifted quite a lot very recently towards, but that does take, it takes time for us to change here. Um, And there are some traditionalists 
probably out there that would say that if you shouldn't be on site, visitors shouldn't be on site, having a look around and a nosy at everything. I do think obviously money is a factor, but when it comes to building a, a, a American whiskey or a bourbon or a whatever distillery in America, yeah, you try to welcome people on the site. I always find you do events or whether it's sporting, whether it's sort of event attendance and music festivals or whatever, or distillery attendances. America always seems to do it a little bit better than we do. Um, maybe we're just more traditionalist in our approach to things, I don't know. But so There's an argument for both sides in this one, for yeah. sure. And like some of the older distilleries too, it's just it's just not possible with the going back and forth. Probably the closest you could get for some of them would be um, comparable, I'm thinking, to like the Johnny Walker experience yeah. in where you do it it's an off-site still immersive still mm -hmm. a lot to teach you but it's just not practical to bring people onto distillery grounds yeah. for some of these but yeah so it's it it was just a it's a difference that's become more and more notable the more i read about scottish distilleries and people like uh like dave broom visiting mm -hmm. especially the newer ones and even some of the newer ones have decided you know we're going to be a working distillery not a visitor distillery so Anyway, just wanted to ask about that. So it is, it is a sort of depending on how you take it, you sort of take that as very like a neutral point. Nothing wrong with just being a working distillery, and there's nothing wrong with being one that wants to welcome loads and loads of visitors. Both can be achieved on the one site, or you can only you, you can set out to achieve one. It's not, uh, I'm not saying it's a good or a bad point. Like, uh, Sure. If you want a nice working distillery, like I'd love to tour around a grain plant and see how a grain plant works. Not the most interesting, and they don't welcome visitors, but it'd be for me, it'd be quite an interesting tour. Um, so yeah, there's 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 no right or wrong really to it. I suppose. I mean, you get some going at. Uh, I'm gonna say one that is a ghost and one that is still one or two that are still active, but you know, a, a canvas, a Cameron Bridge, um, even a Loch Lomond frankly yes yeah. you know giants in terms of lpa um liters per annum for for american listeners um which is a good measure for for just sheer size of a distillery yeah. I, used to, per annum. I used to stay at a small little apartment and a stone's throw away from strathclyde green distillery in the gorbals in glasgow and was absolutely brilliant when they were running distillation they sort of butterscotch sort of theme smell that would waft its way through the streets of Glasgow and the East End was was well worth it <laughs> living near it. You know, bear with me just a sec because I'm thinking I'm just trying to I, I like having these comparisons of um, you know when we say that Glen Adley was producing up to 4.2 LPAs per year mm -hmm. you know what would be a a good comparison so um it is a an incredible number to be sure so for comparison as of at least 2021 if my notes are right so we've got <clears throat> uh some just massive ones out there names people know like mccallan glenfiddich etc mccallan is at about 15 million lpas right now Glenfiddich, 21 million. 
2021 million and um, for an american one you know jack daniels is going at about 15 million lpa and jack daniels is the largest american whiskey producer in the world um jim b mean the largest bourbon uh producer in the world so Jack Daniels at 15 million is the largest one in the world. And it's still behind several, not just one, but several of these Scotch giants. Um, and that's just talking about two countries. But um, so I, I actually think that's a good uh, transition into you had mentioned earlier that Glen Alecky was doing up to 4.2 million LPA. Mm-hmm. And since 2017, since Billy bought it, you're down to about 800,000 yeah. LPA. And it's pretty damn rare at this point in the industry to hear someone scaling down on production as opposed to scaling up. So you you mentioned a few reasons why, you know, you don't want to stress it. You don't want to put the stress on the employees or the equipment, but um, obviously there's more to it than that. And I think that's a great intro to transitioning from the old Glen Alecky to the new Glen Alecky under Billy Walker. Yeah. Um, if anyone's followed Billy Walker, his time of owning Ben Reak and particularly Glen Dronach and then Glen Glasser, you'll see that he has a certain style or focus when it comes to producing a, a bottle of whiskey in the sense that when he purchased Glen Allegy, he very wanted to follow on that track and produce quite a sherried um, single malt Bayside whiskey. So reducing our output allows us and encourages us to do a number of certain things. First of all was every focus on the maturation and for a lot of it, the second maturation or wood finish, if you would, or finishes. Um, so we inherited around 80 to 90,000 casks from Chevis, majority of which was in refill American oak, refill bourbon, which isn't a bad thing. Again, that's a very sort of neutral comment. That gives us a great base to start to play about with everything that we're interested in. So Moving from refill bourbon, we put a lot into Pedro Jimenez sherry and Oloroso sherry. Very typical space side um, flavors were starting to develop there. Lots of fruit, lots of butterscotch, lots of vanillas, uh, plum jam, all that syrup sort of flavors. So by lowering production and uh, sort of reducing production to stop new make consistently 24 hours a day running off the stills, um, we wanted to focus on the re-racking process and, and not put too much strain on the warehouse guys filling new casks and then moving old casks. So if we reduce that output, that allows us to focus on re-racking the maturation side of things. Um, again, it allows us to increase our fermentation times, anything from the 2017 onwards. Basically, an allocated distillery will now be 160 hours fermentation, um, which... I am ignorantly don't know of any other distillery that is doing as long as that. That's just something we wanted to focus on. We wanted to produce a really heavily fruited um, sort of wash and reduce the sort of solids that can generate and or be generated or be continued in the washes and most of the wash still. So we went for a really long fermentation time. Glen uh, used to be around 52 55-ish hours, which is Scottish um, whiskey standard. So, yeah, we we increased our fermentation time, we lowered our output, 
and that allowed us to focus quite heavily on maturation. And that's a couple of significant changes right there. The you know, do, fermentation I do, I do, time. I do say it's so blase, but um, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, they are very, very small in terms of the amount of changes we've made, but they are two massive changes. Yeah, I mean, you, the fermentation time alone, you tripled the fermentation time. I mean, that alone is just mind-boggling. Tri triple the time mm -hmm. to eight hours short of a week. Um, a week being 168 hours. So you're just shy of a week on that. So you're getting yeah. the full yeast. I'm sure, you know, malolactic fermentation getting in mm -hmm. after a couple of days too. Uh, and so when you're shifting that fermentation over, Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned that there's, you know, some solids in there, some more compounds being created. And, um, we'll talk about this a little more later, but I know the profile you're, you want to create mm -hmm. is that heavy viscous, um, I've heard the term muscular thrown around yeah. for it. Um, that long fermentation, you know, what, what goes into it? Like, um, talking about the, we can throw out yeast, we can throw out how is it agitated, if at all, um, things like that, like. Oh, and what containers, of course. Um, so, yeah, container-wise, and it works quite well for us now. The container-wise, we use, well, we've got um, stainless steel washbacks. We've got six of them that we use for a non-peated spirit, and we've got two separate that we use for peated spirit. Stainless steel works really well because, yeah, secondary fermentation sort of starts after 50-odd hours, so you start developing different types of flavour after that. But when you get into the sort of plus over 100 hours, particularly 120 hours, I think you would start to really run the risk of infection or a disease or some sort of bacteria getting into your wash. Um, and then from speaking to a tooth fantastic still, they would suggest that you can only start to really develop uh, a smell of that your wash has been infected when it starts running off the still. And by that time, you're too late and it's went through the pipes and everything. So like getting into that longer fermentation time, the guys really need to watch it and test it and make sure that there isn't an infection or any unwanted bacteria there. Um, so stainless steel really helps with that because you're able to clean it. If there is ever an issue, which there hasn't been, you're able to clean it a lot better than you would be if you were using sort of ordinary pine or Scandinavian pine or whatever, or oak or in, in the sort of the wooden washbacks. So yeah, stainless steel works for us. Um, we've experimented with types of yeast uh, traditionally, we'll just use distillers yeast, um, and we've done some sort of top dressing with different styles of yeast, which come into connection with what cast type we're putting the, the end spirit into as well. Like when we're filling into wine casks, we will top dress with a, a, a white, a red wine yeast, or a wine yeast and such as well, champagne yeast for when we're filling into champagne casks, that sort of thing. Fairly easy connections to make, um, but traditionally we'll just use distillers yeast, and um, yeah long fermentation um we have actually went a little bit further i'll not give you a specific number um marketing would probably have me <laughs> have me for it but we have went a lot longer than that um just to see if it's any different if, if there's many in it, if there's a reason for doing it um so far the, the spirit we've looked at the over we'll say over 400 hours fermentation for being specifically vague, uh, it would 
differences is not too much so far. Um, but it's fun with an independent company, so we get to you get to set aside a wash bag and go right. Let's leave it in for over two weeks, three weeks, that sort of thing. So yeah, it's we do all different types, but yeah, traditionally we do 160 hours to establish yeast. And then that works really well for us because when we go into the distilling, the distilling section of the the, the process with our distill with our stills, quite angled line arms pointing down the way, which encourages a lot of heavier spirit to run through the distillation. And when you've got a big fruity wash and a heavier spirit running off the still, these things combine really well for what we're looking for. And uh, that brings me to something you mentioned uh, at at Travel Bar, where we got to taste a couple of the newer Glenallocky expressions, including some of the cask finishes, was that the line arm not only points downward, but it's also on a short still, height-wise. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I, I I point that out, one, because I, I hadn't really thought about it, but um, going back to comparisons again, just for context, I think of these super tall stills, super tall pot stills at at a Glen Fiddick or um, type of place. And they go, you know, 15, 20 feet high sometimes, or mm. a continuous column still. Yeah. For Jack Daniels, that's 40 feet high or something, 50 mm. feet high. Um, so when you're talking about a shorter still, you know, what does that do chemically and, and for the profile? I guess for being Glen Allocate, post-2017, if you're looking for quite a, a thick, viscous, sort of muscular spirit, as you said, lots of fruit in there, um, and you're putting into quite rich sherry casks as well, or fortified wine casks as well, you, you would want, yeah, you would want quite a full-bodied spirit anyway um, to react with these sort of rich casks. and They're not like horrendously short stills, they're not a, a wee witchy at Mortlake or anything like that. They're not even walking to the still house and go like um that's it doing, <laughs> doing, doing distillation in your in your in your shed or your garage or something. So they're 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 a decent size, but to me they do add the exciting component of the actual distillation or the whole sort of process of making Glen Allocate is it slightly shorter terms of their neck and their line arm points down the way, which again just encourages that heavier spirit to be distilled or condense a lot quicker. And um, they're not traveling up the neck so far that you're really pushing it to try and get the heavy spirit through. The longer the neck, the longer the line arm, the angle of the line arm all affects how much heavier spirit you will condense. Um, so it being a slightly shorter and the line arm being slightly more angled down the way does encourage more heavier spirit um, to run off. And that's what we're looking for. <clears throat> so it works quite well. We haven't decided to go down. I say we, the royal we. Billy hasn't decided to go down the direction of sort of flavour profile we're looking for because he's stubborn in that way. He likes it fits into the whole process that we've got at Glen Allocate and what we can achieve. And it runs off that line arm after it being in a, it's a good thing you pointed this out, a relatively short still. not it's not a hobbit still it's still it's not, it's not a home distillation kit yeah. we're running here. <laughs> right, right. Um, no it, it goes so it goes up and um yeah because the so the higher in a still you go the 
the lighter the compounds just because they're lighter they can go yeah. higher easy much easier so if you stop the still shorter and have the line of going from there you've got still plenty of those heavy compounds the lighter ones mm -hmm. are there too but the heavier yeah. compounds make it up there mm -hmm. so it goes it goes there gets funneled into the line arm starts to uh condense then you've got um horizontal condensers yeah in there which i was fascinated by i've only seen that in one or two places so far but i know other companies are starting to do this so what does a horizontal condenser do for you uh, and the outset when they were put in they were purely a money saving aspect uh the water source is for glenallocate it sits above glenallocate and um, where the foothills have been running since it's slightly higher uh, up in Rennes than the distillery. So if you don't know how gravity works, it falls down. Uh, and it rolls into the distillery and the condensers were an aspect of the fact that the distillery was built without the use of conventional pumps. Um, and in order to sort of save money, it was it was a green initiative well before its time. Um, and then the, the stills would actually act as a sort of elevator for the spirit. Um, you weren't then looking for the condenser to, or any pumps or anything to um, to help the spirit move along or the water to move along. So the condensers were put in to allow this sort of natural flowing ability of the distillery to be completely gravity fed and without any sort of pumps to be introduced into the distillery and the condensers were just an added part of that. Uh, it does encourage a lot more copper contact as well now, now that we've added sort of pumps in the process of the distillery to move everything through. Uh, yeah, so right now they just they use a lot more copper contact, so that removing that unwanted sort of elements and stuff from the spirit, removing any of that badness, uh, as you would say, um, from the spirit itself. So yeah, they're they're quite unique. Um, they had a practical use at the beginning. They're now just they're they're a unique part of the distillery, which makes it sort of interesting um, distillation process for us. But yeah. The distillery back in the 60s, which I probably should have mentioned earlier, completely gravity fed, um, which at the time would have been quite unusual. And now sort of, you sort of somewhat wish we were back to that and with sort of a green initiative within sort of the SWA and sort of usage of electricity and oil and gas and stuff like that within distilleries being completely gravity fed would be quite a unique, uh, unique sort of selling point of a distillery, I guess. Absolutely. It's, it's, uh, like you said, as, as kind of the green initiatives start building, like the, the McCallum's new distillery is supposedly all are more, you know, more green and, and more and more distilleries are trying to grab onto that thing, that eco thing, yeah. but you've got it kind of built in already. Well, we've uh, green wise, I get, we've any electricity that we use on site just now for glenality is 100% green energy. Um, I guess it's brown energy, I guess is the opposite. We don't we don't use that at all at the distillery. It's 100% green energy and that's coming straight from the electricity supplier. We've reduced, I think we've reduced the sort of an efficiency of a boiler or we've increased the efficiency of a boiler, reduced its uh, sort of wastage uh, massively. We're using our boiler less. Um, we have a this is the director of production would be able to tell you the exact science behind it. But we reharness any excess steam that's produced to heat water, to heat radiators um, within the distillery radiators, 
maybe quite an unusual concept when it comes to <laughs> Americans. I've often found any time I visited America, it's very difficult to find a radiator. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so we do what we can uh, within our within the ability of the distillery. We aren't 100% convinced that burning trees is the best thing for the environment. We're yet to be convinced that chopping down trees, taking CO2 and turning it into oxygen is the best thing for the environment. It might be the best thing we have right now, but I can see the, I can see the Scotch industry moving quite quickly past biomass boilers. Um, I think it's, a, for me, and I purely just spect, spectating on this, or speculating, I've got absolutely no, nothing to base this off of, rather than just my own hunch. But I can see us moving past biomass boilers pretty quickly. Um, you can't just continually burn trees now and then plant trees and go, yeah, that's that's fine. That can't be the final solution for me. It doesn't make much sense. No, it's it's long-term, it's just inefficient. It doesn't happen. It's, it takes too long. And it's just bad for the environment. Um, particularly with the, with other options now available and it's you know when if if it was the only option available that's one thing but you've got others now so it's it's different yeah for sure so uh, before um jumping into the exploration of wood types and and mm-hmm. oak species and all of these that that you've been working through i wanted to jump back to something on the sales point and the business side for a second so in going from not only 4.2 liters per annum to 800,000, becoming independent from a larger spirits conglomerate, uh, no longer selling to blenders, mm-hmm. and um, I think I heard you correctly, also not um, independent bottlers or scaling down considerably independent bottlers too. So there's kind of two angles to that to take mm-hmm. and uh, the first one is when uh when billy walker bought glen Allocky and decided that that was going to be the case they were no longer going to sell to blenders that you're just going to scale back uh what was that conversation like or what do you think that conversation was like with the blenders who have been depending on glen Allocky malt for so long uh oh. The simple answer to that is probably, I don't know. I don't know what the conversation <laughs> was like. Um, I would only imagine, well, Shibis would have been the, obviously it was their distillery, so they would have been the biggest user of Glen Allocate. Um They would have taken some Glen Allocate with them, I presume. We wouldn't have inherited absolutely everything. And then I'm, I am often asked, well, how are Shivas going to replace Glen Allocate because they're not going to be sourcing any Glen Allocate anymore? And my basic sort of thought would be that every time they bottle a Shivas Regal, they will slowly move the percentage of Glen Allocate down and increase the percentage of something else. And then eventually they'll go from one to zero and then there'll be no more Glen Allocate in it, but your palate can't tell because over the years it's been slowly worked out. That's the way I would do it. Um, I'm a much less experienced blender than the ones at ships. So I presume they've got a much more scientific plan when it comes to it as well. Um, then independent bottlers as well. We've, we've actually stopped supplying all independent bottlers. We have noticed a lot of Glen Allocate coming out from independent bottlers since we acquired the distillery, which is 
I think it's pretty common when it comes to a distillery starting to release single malts. Independent bottlers who have held on to stock when it hasn't got much of a sort of following or a fan base. Once that starts to create itself, the independent bottler as well will see an advantage of releasing that whiskey as well because Glenallic, new Glenallic fans who are trying a single malt from the distillery are going to go, well, I'm going to go try this as well. And a good independent bottling, a Gordon and McPhail, Berry Brothers, Cadden Head, they release a Glenallic. That's introducing people to Glenallocate for the first time that they might have never tried before. And then they might decide to come over to the distillery and try what we do. Just it, it can benefit one another. But I'm obviously saying that having worked with Cadden Heads as well before. So maybe I'm slightly biased. <laughs> I know some people don't like to clean the bottles and stuff, but every <laughs> they can help. It's a good perspective. Yeah. Yeah. It it no, it's a it's a great perspective. And I, I look to you've got in Scotland, you have that long history of independent bottlers. Yeah. Uh, going back to it, because Cadenitz was uh, the first, right? Or was the first yeah, or second? The oldest, oldest Scottish independent bottler. Right. My memory serves me correctly. Um, That's what I thought, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we we don't really have that in the States. You know, we've got a couple companies, Lost Lantern, um, was a previous podcast guest being one of them, they're starting to do independent bottling here, but... Mm-hmm. It's it's not widespread at all. We don't have a lot of them, and mm-hmm. uh, but but to your point, uh, when I when I spoke with the folks at Lost Lantern, Nora and Adam, uh, they gave me samples of bottlings of distilleries, two that I had never tried and two that I had never even heard of. So, it's a wonderful way to introduce people to a to a spirit and to a distillery, yeah, that you wouldn't otherwise get, and it benefits both ones like an allergy where you can now get your own kind of glenality blend uh branded excuse me mm-hmm. malts but also ones uh i usually go to the example of um kalila mm-hmm. where yeah they have one maybe two products that they put out on their own but the rest of it comes out either in a blend or by mm-hmm. independent bottlers yeah. and otherwise you wouldn't know that this monster of distilling is uh you know what it's actually what it's um, solo flavor is yeah if you will so it, it's a great thing to do so uh so that so yeah so that was one side of the business question and then the other side being of course when you decide not to send to blend not to sell to blenders or to independent bottlers that's a huge market and and revenue source that mm-hmm. you're losing uh all the while you're reducing production and um and refocusing so how do you so what it, what it did what did that look like in terms of saying um you know we've got okay we've got 80 to 90,000 barrels of of stock right now which isn't a small amount it's a it's a considerable amount but it's irreplaceable in a certain way you've yeah. got that much on hand we're producing a fifth of what we were before and that stuff is going to take 8 to 10 years to get to where we want it. Mm-hmm. Um, what did the kind of liquid strategy and business plan look like getting between 2017 and when you had enough of the new stock to replace those revenues? Uh, I guess a lot of the plan is managing your expectations or managing your, what your targets are and going, yeah, we could we could release a lot 
more than what we do now. But we only want to release stuff when it's ready and when we think it's good enough. And as I mentioned earlier about the quite large re-racking process that we had to go under when we acquired the distillery. Um, so if you followed Glen Allocay for the now five, six years that Billy Walker's owned it, you'll have seen the actual spirit development move forward as well. So the plan was, and I didn't start at the beginning of Glen Allocay, I came, I think, two years in. So the plan for me that I could see at the start would have been to establish a brand, to introduce people to Glen Allocay's DNA, to let them know this, look, this is a single malt whiskey that's a little bit different of a head start, a little bit different of a starting point that it's from the 60s and we've got this much stock, but you've never heard of it. So you get this, I'd say the benefit of both worlds. You've got the stock and you can play around and you can release genuinely 18, 25, 30-year-old stock that no one's ever heard of you. So you've got to establish this brand, like a new distillery. So we're very much a, there's no point in running, let's walk. Um, Let's not push ourselves too much. Let's establish a product. Um, let's establish a customer base, a loyal customer base, releasing good products. And yeah, it's maybe quite strange for someone that works in a sales department to say, yeah, we could sell more. But what's the point in that? Um, we're trying to establish a, a long lasting brand and distillery that Billy's looking to pass on to future generations of his family. So why do it all in one generation when we can do it over three? Like, if you know what I mean, we're not trying to, uh, we're not trying to change the face of the world very, very quickly. We're going to take take our time and do it right without putting ourselves in a stock jeopardy, I guess. We could sell a lot of 10-year-old, but we'd have no 10-year-old in two years' time. You know what I mean? There's no 12-year-old in two years' time and no 15-year-old. So, yeah, we're, we're we're taking things nice and slow at our own pace. Um, yeah, trying to just release good whiskeys, which is, I guess, the whole point and everything. And you know, last last question on the business front, too. And um, this is, I'm going to ask you a little bit to look into a crystal ball that technically isn't even yours at this point. It's, it's Billy's crystal ball. But um, the in a couple of interviews that he did uh, in, let's say, 2021, 2022, um, in talking about the sale of Benriach and Glasso uh, Glendronach to Brown Foreman, uh, several interviewers asked him variations of, you know, what will you miss the most? What did you want to hold on to? And uh, the the answer he gave pretty consistently was that he wished he could have held on to Glen Glasso a little longer yeah. um, to see more of what was going on. Like they had some stuff, some great stuff ready to come out, but it was just time to sell due to partners and all, you know, other things. Now talking about Glen Allocky, you're in your wording, you're talking about Billy wanting this to be a generational thing for his yeah. family, for the people involved. So the way that I'm hearing that is that he's planning that this is going to be something that he owns and his family owns for, for quite a bit of time. So, um, it, does this mean you know for this for Glen Allocky, there's no other partners it's fully Billy and and is that what he envisions that this is going to be in his family for the foreseeable future yeah, well, Billy is Billy is the majority owner I guess of the distillery 
Um, he purchased it along with Graham Stevenson, uh, who's worked in the industry for a long time, Inverhouse, I believe. Um, and then Trissa Savage as well, who he'd worked with the, the Mayor Clendronathan from Glasa and previously worked with the uh, Burn Stewart in the 90s as well. I think they'd worked for like 35 years together. Um, so a team of three purchased the distillery, but the distillery would have been the majority shareholder or majority owner in that. And he's the one that's, yeah, our master blender, master distiller. Um, yeah, managing director, I guess, as well, yeah. Right. So, so he's going to want it in his, even though, so he's not a, a sole owner, which would make it, of no. course, everything makes everything easier, but yeah. um, still he wants, he's, he's not, I would imagine he, when he bought the other three, he was not looking to sell them. He wasn't thinking about, you know, the day that he would sell them. No. Um, from interviews that I've listened to Billy as well, it's not something we've ever personally spoke about together, that it was, he had two South African business partners that he owned the three distilleries with and, and they were looking to, to to sell the business on and you get outvoted and it sells on but um, as Billy's the majority shareholder and majority owner of Clinality, I think he would very much like to pass on his ownership of shares if you would or to his family for future generations to to operate, to run, to enjoy the, the wonderful world that is whiskey with all right, and that will go into the, uh, the final portion, which was going to, you know, it's been about 10, 15 minutes just talking about the uh, the finishes. And um, there's one part I forgot to ask you about in the process, mm-hmm. which you mentioned a travel bar too. And I was fascinated by it because I didn't really thought about it, which was that for barley, um, the barley you use, you source it more from the East Coast rather than the West mm-hmm. Coast because yeah. you get lower moisture content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I hadn't really thought about the moisture content as much because we usually think of the differences in terms of starch versus protein and the ratio mm-hmm. within there, and then the moisture is just what it is, and you reduce the moisture by any number of, of parts in the process. But by starting with something that has a lower moisture content, uh, you know, what 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 does that mean? Like, explain that for the for the listener. What does that mean for your production and and flavor and all that? Well, on a basic sense, of the the lower the moisture, it takes less work to to reduce the moisture, and usually the higher moisture within the barley would result in the lower yield for the same sort of tonnage. So, for barley on the west coast, which higher has a higher moisture content, because although everyone outside of Scotland thinks it rains all the time in Scotland, um, it rains quite a lot on the west coast. It doesn't rain as much on the east coast as a drier environment, um, so it does have a lower moisture content, um, but you still get a lot of the through the compound starch and stuff. Uh, but you would get a lesser yield. Being purchasing malt from crisp malt, the large supplier within the Scotch industry, they will source their barley from the east coast of Scotland. So you're sort of subject to where they source their barley as well, and the majority of that is grown on the east coast. You'll have Springbank do it, Gladi do it on Isla, and they'll grow what you would say is local barley for them. Um, and having worked at Springbank as well, the yield on local barley growing 
uh, mostly be down to the water content, the higher mo moisture content within the boiler. You do get less of the yield, it costs you more money because you're getting a farmer to grow it by itself and um, dedicate a field and then you get a lower yield in the outturn. So it's not something that sustainably you could do for a longer period of time. <laughs> it's something I'd quite like to do at Glenallity if we could grow our own barley. But um, I think uh, I think our director of production, Richard, would have me have me for it as well. Um, but yeah, um, East Coast barley just it has a lower moisture content um, compared to West Coast barley, and yeah, you get a, you get a higher yield per tonnage from it as well. Um, yeah, there there is a huge conversation within whiskey right now about terroir within barley, which is quite an interesting subject. Um, a lot of people will say it's a thing. A lot of people say it's not a thing. Um, a lot of people would say, yeah, you, you take away any of the terroir aspects when you go through the distillation process, which obviously wine doesn't, which is more heavily involved in conversation and terroir within wine. Um, barley is such an interesting topic. If you look at Waterford just now, they're doing a lot of work regarding the terroir within barley and where they source it from. But, uh, yeah, I don't if if you looked into the terroir of barley before or the flavor profiles it can generate. Oh yeah, we're uh, big fans of it on this podcast. Uh, actually, I think as of recording, Waterford, Water Mark Newton from Waterford would have been one mm. of the maybe two or three episodes ago. But um, yeah, but yeah, we talk with him. I'm gonna be talking with Angelita and um, Doctor Herb from them as well about because mm. I'm I'm fascinated with the terroir question. So. Um, are you are you fascinated in the way that you believe it's a thing? Or are you fascinated as just a subject? What's your uh, both? I mean both, but I I do believe it's a thing. Yeah, I believe it's a thing. If you with the condition that you have to let it be a thing, like if when you're doing the single farms or the single sourcing, mm -hmm. even from regional, I would say you can have terroir. Once you go into just commodity grain, I, I don't think. I don't think that the flavor of or the profile of one distillery over another is terroir. I don't think regionality in uh, in type, if you go to lowland versus highland versus mm -hmm. isla, I, I don't consider that to be terroir. I just consider that kind of a regional specialty, if you mm -hmm. will. But when you look at on a very micro level, like Waterford, and you're doing these different farms same process or on nearly identical processes, but different barley, uh, even farm by farm, acre by acre, there is a difference. And I think it's, to me, it's empirical. It's, it's shown both quant qualitatively in the taste, but also quantitatively in the research being done. So to kind of the TLDR version of that is that, yes, I'm a, I'm a believer in terroir to a point. And I think it can very easily be overcome or overpowered by other factors um, if you want it or even if you don't want it. And it's just not a focus of yours. Wolfburn Distillery captures the spirit of Scotland's far north. As the northernmost distillery on the Scottish mainland, Wolfburn ties together long fermentation, slow distillation, and seaside maturation for unique and superb character. Originally founded in 1821, this exceptional distillery was restored in 2012 to its original greatness, resurrecting a 200-year-old distillery on the largest blanket peat bog in all of Europe. Whether you're drinking Northland, 
Wolfburn's first expression, aged in American oak quarter casks, Aurora, a beautiful sherried whiskey laid down in a combination of bourbon and Oloroso sherry casks, Morvern, their lightly peated variety, or Langskip, their cast strength release. There's a Wolfburn for everyone. Arriving to the States later this year is their first permanent age state of release, the 10-year-old. You can also find small batch releases and limited edition bottlings at specialty retailers across the U.S. Reach out to our friends at Impex Beverages for more information on where to find your favorite expression. Wolfburn Distillery. Fortune favors the brave. Yeah, I think I think you can really see I think you see it within Warford. If you try some local barley from Springbank, you can a ten year old local barley Springbank is different from a ten year old Springbank. But it's they they use they would use as you would say commodity grain, but commodity barley. Um, I think to really get a sort of flavour of it or to really see the difference in flavours of it, you, you would have to use pretty sort of lethal bourbon casks as well. I think you sort of lose it if you start getting into the sort of heavily sherried or fortified wines and stuff. You're sort of covering up the differences in flavour. So you, if you were to focus on it and that's something, a point you wanted to prove, you would have to put it into very specific casks. And obviously it's a study, so you'd have to put it in sort of a box and go, right, this is what we're looking for. And, and then do we achieve that? <coughs> Uh, yeah, I, Rob Arnold. totally agreed. Is it Doctor Rob Arnold? I don't want to give him a doctor. Yeah, yeah. Take away his oh, doctor. yeah. Um, I, I'm working on getting him on too. So yes, yeah. He, uh, <laughs> he wrote a very. I read his book, Warren West. I thought it was very, very interesting. Um, I don't know if associating the word terroir with whiskey is the way we should go down. We should probably come up with another word. Why do we need to take the French word for it? Why can't we come out with something else? But I think, uh, yeah, I would agree with him. Yeah, and the the one other example I want to give too is uh, you pointed out with Springbank with the local barley, mm-hmm. Brickladic as well. Using um, if you try the the beer barley mm-hmm. or bear barley, I always mispronounce that. I would um, say beer. I would say beer barley. Just okay. That's I usually go with that, and it's like a 50-50 shot. And I feel like it's fifty fifty on how you, who wants to be a millionaire, and you always choose mm-hmm. the wrong one. So yeah, okay. So try their. If you try their regular classic laddie, the you know Tiffany blue bottle kind of thing, yeah, and then you try the Isla barley, so it's mm-hmm. grown on Isla, and then you try the beer barley, so you have that particular strain. There's there's a difference. It it's just to me it's unquestionable that there's a difference, but they're purposefully trying to do that. And to your point about the casks too, uh, you know with with Waterford, I know that it's not all ex bourbon. Like they, they have some ex, um, ex wine casks and all of that in there. But to the control part of it, it's con- it's a consistent mix of casks. Mm-hmm. So you kind of know what you're getting with the cask, so you can separate that from the what's changing in the barley mm-hmm. part of the equation. But otherwise, yeah, I would I, if I were designing it, like you said, I would say just ex bourbon across the board ideally from the same distillery, like make it all ex Jack Daniels barrels and um, just, or ex makers and just go with that. Um, yeah. So that, that's kind of where I would yes. go with that. We, we, for Glenallachy, bringing it back to Glenallachy, uh, we don't, we don't really, um, terroir within barley is not something we really look at. What we tend to look at very typically as is in the maturation stage. And we'll look at different genuses of oak from around the world, 
And I guess you could delve deep and say that we're really looking at sorry, when, especially when it comes to American oak, we're trying to source some Corpus Cariana, source some trees grown, oak grown in Ozark, some chinkapin oak, and the standard American virgin oak as well, Spanish, French, Portuguese, Hungarian, Ukrainian, Russian, Mongolian, Japanese, Scottish, all these different genuses of oak from around the world. And okay, they're oak and they're different genus. And what's the big difference between them? It's where they're grown, it's their environment, it's the side of the hill they were grown on compared to the where the sun rises, what what was round about them and what different flavours that they picked up from the land and what different flavours do they impart on on the spirit. So we don't look at the barley's aspect of where it's grown and how it's grown and what genus it was. We'll look at the tree, um, which again is delving into something completely and utterly different that we feel hasn't really been focused on within the Scotch industry, but it's something we're absolutely fascinated by. Um, different genuses of oak and the flavours they impart, even within a relatively small continent in terms of its size, moving from Spanish to French to Portuguese. The flavour differences between these three are, yeah, pretty fascinating. Okay, I think that's. <laughs> I think it's a worthy um, and certainly a, at least equivalent kind of experiment, if you will, to the question of terroir. One's looking at the barley side of it, one's looking at the oak and the maturation. Uh, we, I'm a big fan of Doc Swinson's here in the mm. U.S., and they put out a. They call it French toasted. Um, it was MGP bourbon finished in a uh, new, so virgin French oak toasted mm -hmm. casks. And uh, we've seen plenty of French oak finishes, but it's usually, you know, first fill or second fill refill. It's, I don't, I can't remember actually, now that I think about it, I can't remember a, a virgin French oak cask for whiskey because most of it goes mm -hmm. to wine. Yeah. And so they used it from a particular area of this one particular forest. And, and to me, when I tasted it, I was like, this is like no French oak that I finished that I've ever tried before. Yeah. It's so different. And uh, the question of, of oak species too. I mean, the Quercus Alba, American oak, American white oak within that you've got 60 plus different varieties Mm -hmm. um, not to mention just if you had the same variety from different areas yeah. and so it, it's it's fascinating the I, most of what we associate in the u.s it's going to come from either the ozarks or um some from from the northern midwest like minnesota area there's a lot of timber in minnesota but then you when you start branching out pun not intended but it works uh mm -hmm. you you end up with some of the ones you mentioned like the um the gariana for example and uh it happens a fluke of timing just last night i tried a bourbon from hood river distillers it's a at they're out in oregon they make a mccarthy's single malt it's kentucky bourbon finished in gariana oak hmm. and i'll be honest the other gariana oak finishes i've had i, I haven't really liked it uh I'll recognize it. It's it's interesting, but I just don't like the profile. It's not for me. And yet, for whatever reason, this one, I loved it. It yeah. worked great. And but it was also recognizably Gariana. Yeah. There's something different about it. So um 
I know we'll run a little bit over time on this, but uh, as long as that's okay with you, just a couple more minutes no, to talk about that. Yeah. Fine. Carry on. Uh, uh, so in in choosing these wood types, or let, let's even go back to to what was the decision, or why did Billy try? Why did Billy decide that this was going to be kind of the focus or a major focus of Glen Allegy? post-purchase? I think what we wanted to do was establish what you would describe as a core range and the makeup of that core range, although depending on the vintage that we've got available for the release that we're making, it will differ in the formula, the percentages of that specific cast type will go into the overall batting to produce that 12-year-old or 15-year-old, 18-year-old and stuff. From beyond that, because we had quite a lot of stock to work with, we wanted to experiment a little bit and move into different areas and look at how finishing in different wood types, not necessarily all virgin oak, but um, fortified wines, Italian wines, French wines, Spanish wines, Portuguese wines. We wanted to, well, West Coast, but uh, Californian wines as well. We wanted to see how these different cast types influence Glenallic spirit, where it's all really got the same starting point. So if it's spent most of its life at that point and refill bourbon. So it gives us a nice mature blank canvas, got a lot of the almond, butterscotch, popcorn, sort of vanilla notes there. How what kind of different directions can we move this off in? And um, so we've got a lot of different wine casks, a lot of different fortified wine casks, Adidas, Moscatels, Marsalas, all that. So a bunch of ports, lovely ports. And then we thought, well, let's look at virgin oak. What is easily accessible to us? And obviously, American oak is very accessible. So, Quirk and Salbert's a standard American white oak. Um, virgin French oak is obviously quite accessible. Spanish virgin oak as well. So, we sort of had these three and thought, right, how could we actually go a little bit further? And we started sourcing a lot of chinkapin oak, which is something we are absolutely fascinated by. It introduces a lot more sort of black licorice or aniseed sort of flavor to the spirit, which is very, very interesting. And then that sort of just let our mind sort of run. Like, where, what not obscure countries, but what obscure places can we source virgin oak from? And um, yeah, uh, there's a funny story. Well, I guess you'd be the judge of that. Um, when we source some Mizanara oak, um, which is horrendously expensive at £3,000 a cask, and it's still sitting in Japan at that point. Um, and we've not even got to transport it to Scotland to put whiskey into. We thought, right, okay, that's incredibly expensive. Can we try to find a cheaper alternative? Can we try to find a different genus of oak from a different part of the world with some sort of scientific or hunch behind it that goes, yeah, this might work. We, we sourced some Siberian slash Russian oak because we felt that this would probably impart a lot of flavour very similar to Mizanara without the difficulty of price and scarcity. So we thought, right, let's do that. So we, so we, so we filled in some Russian oak and then gave it about a year and a half, two years. Then we went on to taste it and realized that it absolutely tastes nothing like Mizanara. Um, so there was some controls behind it. We had some sort of basis and sort of thought that, yeah, this might work and we got it completely wrong. Um, it's still a fascinatingly incredible whiskey that we've managed to produce, but it doesn't taste like the outcome we were looking for, which is, part and parcel of being in the lab and wanting to experiment and look at different things. Occasionally you might get it wrong, but you create something that's very nice 
just not what you were looking for. Um, so we've actually moved our attention there to Mongolian oak. Um, again, based off the same thing, we feel that Mongolian oak might present a different flavour profile to the Russian oak, but can it present a similar flavour profile to the Mizanara without being as porous, without being as expensive? Um, so we're looking at that now as well. Um, but yeah, really what we wanted to do was see where we could take finality. Um, you talk about from the 60s, it has been a spirit that has constantly been added to, it's constantly been moved around and developed in different ways so it fits into an overall blend. And we really wanted to see how it stands up, one by itself, but two within different characters or different cast types. It is a versatile spirit. It has been since its birth. We just wanted to try and push that to different limits. And Virgin Oak is incredibly fascinating because you can easily overcook the spirit. Um, you have to constantly monitor it, which makes the job difficult but interesting. Um, and you're constantly learning how an oak type that you've never worked before, how it influences your spirit. For example, we've, we've done two different releases of Scottish Virgin Oak. Not many people have done it. Yeah, we're, I'm reluctant, we're not pushing boundaries or knocking down barriers or anything silly like that. We're just doing it because we want to see within ourselves what flavours it presents. And that's what we're doing with Virgin Oaks from around the world. Um, yeah, it's, it's something we're quite fascinated in. We think there's an audience out there for it that enjoy that sort of experimental side and unique side. And yeah, hopefully it's, it, people like it. Um, but we are just sort of having a bit of fun and seeing how it how it develops. And it's it's absolutely brilliant to be able to do that and have the tools to do it as well. Um, and as I said, when you've got a versatile spirit like Glen Allocate, you can play about a little bit and you can you can move it, move it and shake it and see what happens. Um, and fingers crossed, fingers crossed it comes out good. So I think that is a, a great way to to go into my kind of closing question for this, which was when you're experimenting with these different wood types, um, mm -hmm. some of them, like like the Mizanara, pose the problem of pose. Let's say pose the production barrier mm -hmm. of cost. Mm -hmm. um, in the case of Mizanara, it's also you're it's also leaky as hell, so you're you know losing stuff there. Um, in the case of if you manage to get some Gariana oak, you've got to wait until it. Like you can't harvest it. it has you have to wait till it falls down of its own accord and then you can get it so you have a, a limit in scalability just because of that mm -hmm. and as a similar track i think about um jack daniels did a series of tennessee tasters it's now called the distillery series but the first seven were called tennessee tasters and one of them was regular jack daniels and it was finished in uh, jamaican allspice wood barrels right and uh it's jamaican allspice is a protected species and it's it's treated much the same as gariana is you can't harvest it off the ground you know out of the ground it has to be fallen of its own accord itself, yeah. exactly and then you run into the questions of you know is it too naughty is it all you know all these yeah. things so there's an inherent limiting factor there others like virgin american white oak it's not really a limiting factor there's there's a lot of it is mm -hmm. being replenished um there's despite what people say there's not really a barrel shortage it's more about there's a lager shortage mm -hmm. um 
so so i guess the way i want to ask this is when you guys are looking at both the wood types and the cask finishes that you've got right now going on and also ones that you want to try out like gary oak and Mm -hmm. things like that beyond the just sheer fun of experimenting with it Mm-hmm. Are you looking for any that you can scale with and produce on a scalable level or is it, or do you envision this more being something that is, you know, scale, different size scales, but more about the experimentation of variety as opposed to finding the best ones? I think if it's something we're working with, for the first time, it will be on an experimental scale. We'll see the results, and then you can move forward and try and scale it up to the to the level of, say, what we're working with right now, Chincapin, French and Spanish. We know the results we've gotten from them, and we like them quite a lot, so we can increase how many of these casks that we purchase. And then, therefore, how many bottles we release of it, how often we release it, can we establish a, quite a regular release of these virgin oaks and so when it comes to for example the Mongolian and the Russian and the Mizanara the Mizanara you sort of the Mizanara is on a different sort of path because yeah because you know you know the issues with it but you know the benefits of it as well it's well established benefits of using Mizanara oak um, the fact people are probably willing to fight over to get a bottle of it is from the sales side of things that are Maybe not actually thing, but the benefit of it. But you know what you're getting from Mizanara in that sense. The other ones are you start small and you work with it. You start by you buy a modest amount of Russian and Mongolian oak that you're paying a third of the price of the Mizanara for. And then you go, right, can we get results from this? What are they like? Are we what 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 we want to achieve? And then you start to move forward and go, right, well, let's start filling more and more into this because it's something that we have the results of the flavour of. Billy would say, and he's always telling me that wherever I ask a question about blending, and as I move more and more in that direction, the answer he always gives me is experience. How do you know how to do that? And he says experience. And you go, right, so in order to get that experience, you just need to do it, and you need to get it wrong, and you need to get it right, and then you know. And that's, that's a lot of what we're doing here. We're using glenallochy in ways that glenallochy has never been used before, so you need to get the experience of whether it works or not. And then once you know, you can get bigger. Um, I guess, but that's pretty much our ethos, I guess, for the whole of Glenallachie. We're small, we're nice, we're contained, and we'll get bigger when we think it's right to get bigger. But we're in no rush. I like it. I like it. Perfect way to end it. So, Ronan, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, it was a pleasure to meet you in person. Pleasure to have you on yeah. podcast talking yeah, about Glenallachie. Um, hang on with me for just a sec after we finish recording just close some stuff out but in the meantime uh, when this episode goes live we're going to have some tasting notes from the night at Travel Bar that I've got cool. so we got the the rye the chinkapin uh, red wine cask finish and I mm-hmm. believe one other uh, just as a teaser the rye is James E. Pepper rye barrels um, chinkapin if you hear that and you're like oh that sounds familiar try Bomberger's here in the states made by mictors but it's sold under Bombergers. that uses 36 month air dried chinkapin so you can get an idea of what chinkapin may taste like uh, it's, again I, I like giving people kind of 
benchmarks or some kind of marker yeah. to compare to. Otherwise, you're like, I don't know what this tastes like. Um, so you got that. So there'll be tasting notes. There'll be also be a link to Glen Athlete's website where you can purchase it. It's all the social medias. Uh, and I think that's about it. So Ronan, thank you again. An absolute Thanks pleasure. Uh, and it's been another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. Cheers and see you next week. Hey folks, thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating and review on your podcast app of choice, and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps, or email me at david at whiskeymywedding.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeyinmywedding.com. That's whiskey with an E, for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon-to-resume Under the Influencer series, and $25 a month means you join the Barrel Share Club. Each month, Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review, bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or at Whiskey Ring Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Whiskey Ring. You can follow on Facebook at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.